You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, John. Hi, Glenn. You made me start again. We're having we're having the perfect start now. This is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show at BloggingHeads.tv. I am with John McWhorter. John's a professor at Columbia University. I'm a professor at Brown University. We're the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. Glenn and John, the Glenn Show. The Glenn Show is sponsored by the Watson Institute at Brown. And uh, here we are doing the Glenn Show, John, at a time of national crisis. How are you holding yeah. up? Huh, pretty well. The news goes by so quickly these days that it's hard to really keep up with it. You know, I, you start to reflect and then things take some new hairpin turn. But um, I'm, I'm holding up. Pretty well. I'm feeling. I'm feeling like I've got a compass. How do you? How do you feel? Well, I'm on vacation. I mean, if you're going to get personal, I'm in the White Mountains, New Hampshire, uh, at a uh, classic inn uh, with beautiful vistas in every direction. You can't see them here because I got to get out of the sunlight in order to record this. <laughs> record this conversation. Uh, I am at the end of summer, so you know there's always a kind of bittersweet about that. Um, and uh, my lovely wife, Lawan and I are moving house and uh, have sold that house that I spoke of uh, in a previous conversation with you, where I feared we wouldn't be able to sell because we're black. And we thought they, if they knew that the house belonged to black people, they wouldn't make an offer. Finally sold at a pretty decent price. And uh, we we're out from under that burden mm-hmm. and uh, facing the monumental a challenge of uh, moving into a big, sprawling, uh, beautiful uh, Xanadu of a mansion that I've, uh, <laughs> it's not a mansion, but it's a, it's a gorgeous, uh, expansive, uh, uh, a modern uh, house on the east side of Providence, Rhode Island that I, we got for a song, quote unquote, because if you live in Boston, New York, San Francisco, you know what I'm talking about, man. This place would be yeah. way out of my price range, but as it is, right. uh, you know, and there's no what? traffic jams. I mean, the only know. problem with that is that you have to decorate every one of those rooms, yeah. including figuring out what you're going to put in the windows. That is a huge job. You know, just curtains for every room. Yeah, I, I dread it. I just dread it. Oh, and it costs it. a fortune. Wait a minute. Not only do you have to solve it, you have to buy it. <laughs> it costs a fortune. Um, yeah. But it makes uh, for an interesting challenge for uh, myself and for Luan to to do these things. And, you know, you got a lifetime of stuff that has accumulated. So, uh, you know, our problem is, you know, what artwork goes on what wall and what room? I mean, it's a kind of how you figure it out. It's not like we have to, you know... So anyway, but the window treatment problem is a serious problem. I agree, but we should not be talking about the domestic realm when uh, uh, everything is so uh, up in arms. We're in the middle of a presidential election. We're in the middle of a people call it a national awakening on racial issues. We're in the middle of rioting. We're in the middle of political violence, man, political violence. Um, and, uh, things feel very uncertain to me and I'm, I'm uneasy. I keep, <laughs> I keep checking my retirement portfolio to make sure that it hasn't been zeroed out by fate. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what? I actually, when I talk about my compass, part of what I mean though is this. You talk about the racial reckoning. It's occurred to me that there's a certain crowd who think, and I, I don't think they're trying to force this. They actually think this is natural. 
that we're having a racial reckoning in the wake of what happened to George Floyd. And that what that racial reckoning means is that America is now responsible for towing a radical leftist line on race that involves all of this recreational self-examination and this idea that every single field of moral or artistic endeavor needs to suddenly turn itself upside down to quote unquote observe diversity. And also that people who don't tow a certain ideological or terminological line are not only to be criticized, but also sanctioned in some way. And already the meaning of the word cancel has changed so much in the past 10 minutes that I won't say cancel, but the idea is that you are supposed to be beaten in the public square in some way. There's a whole crowd of people who think that the racial reckoning is not supposed to be what we maybe would have thought it was, say, a couple decades ago when we had the national conversation on race. And even though all of that wouldn't have made sense to everybody, still, both feet were on the ground. You know, you were talking about affirmative action in certain ways. Now there's a group of people, and I wouldn't say that all of them are young, but the idea is that the racial reckoning means that we're supposed to conduct the country as if Robin DiAngelo, Ibram Kendi, and ta Coates are the authors of, say, three testaments of a certain volume. And that is creating a lot of friction. But this is the thing. I think there's a, a certain pushback against that. And the pushback is not saying we don't need to think about race at all. But I think that without knowing it, this crowd has played their hand so obnoxiously. And they didn't know it. They really do think that their way is the only way of looking at things. But I think that, frankly, the rest of us, being pushed into that corner, I think a significant number of people are saying, no, this is not what we need to do. And I'm beginning to enjoy seeing signs of that. Do you know what I mean? Well, hold on. I'm going to make sure I'm following you. Um, there's a national reckoning with race. It's different from the conversation on race that Clinton conducted in the 90s. There's a certain urgency of declaring yourself on the right side of history and a certain uh, intimidation or force to enforce that urgency. But then there's a pushback against that, which you're hardened to see. Is that, yeah. the, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I don't feel like those people are going to take over. I, I, I was worried about that, say, six weeks ago. But I think I'm noticing that with normal people, there's a point at which people are beginning to be emboldened. To say, well, say no. for example, give me an example of what you're talking about. Trader Joe's. And so, for example, somebody started a petition against Trader Joe's because they have this little joke of naming some of their products, say Trader Jose, if it's some taco sauce, or yeah. Thai Joe, if it's some Thai food. I actually, I never saw that one. But a, a person of this, this woke contingent started a petition, which got an impressive number of signatures saying that Trader Joe's needs to stop that because it's racist. Well, you know, most people wouldn't consider that little joke to be offensive to anybody, including people who the joke was on. You know, many Latinos then said, we never thought there was anything wrong with Trader Jose. If anything, we found, we felt kind of acknowledged. And so Trader Joe started to say, okay. And then there was a bit of a pushback and then they okay. reversed, they reversed it. They said, no, we're going to keep the products. And it's not just that, but I'm seeing a bunch of little things and some slightly bigger things where I'm beginning to see that a critical mass of people just may say, yes, we're going to have a reckoning on race, but we're not going to have star chamber Stalinist show trials and the, the things that these other people seem to genuinely think is progress. Okay. So I, my response to that would be, 
okay, we're seeing some pushback because there's absurdity in, ex- in excess. But the main thrust is very much deeply embedded in this politically correct uh, narrative about uh, anti-racism. Uh, and I give the sports uh, arena, the athletes, uh, as an example of that, the NBA that didn't play games, they boycotted. And some of the things that were said around that, like the country doesn't deserve our our talent is almost what the uh, athletes were saying. We shouldn't have to perform like monkeys for these people who are not, you know, who nevertheless will not affirm the value of black life. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Because uh, Black Lives Matter is not exactly, um, oh, the Salvation Army um, or the Red Cross or something like that. It's political. It's kind of, it's kind of sharp-edged. Whether you like them or love them, you, you, they definitely have content. They, they're coming from a particular ideological, philosophical posture. It's political. It's on the left. It, it, it's on uh, Rate black nationalist in a certain kind of, uh, uh, I mean, it's, you know, anyway, anyway, and I, as you can tell from the tone of my voice, I may not be entirely on board with the Black Lives Matter view of the world. I may have to push back against the Black Lives Matter view of the world. But to see the National Basketball Association with shirts with the slogan on it, with the thing along the side of the court when they're playing the uh, game, the players all in the post-game interviews being interviewed, uh, making their statements, the coaches. Uh, did you see Doc Rivers, who's a coach of the L.A. Clippers, made a very passionate uh, statement. He used to coach the Boston Celtics, made a very passionate statement that I saw uh, online somewhere. And I thought, my God, how very interesting, because these things are political. So we have a major sports league. Or if you transport that to another business, can you imagine another line of business where the very conduct of it would be, you know, shrouded and infused with the iconography and the the uh, mythology of the political view of a particular part of the partisan spectrum? Um, so that I think is is indicative of, of, of a sign of our times. I'm mean, I, I'm not sure, and it, it's also, by the way, uh, if you're a white player and you like your flag, suppose you're a good old boy, you you're a NASCAR lover, that you're a white guy from Alabama and you play football. Uh, are you going to say anything to the contrary of what no. these guys are saying, man? No, no, <laughs> you laugh no, your I. Yeah, you're you're right. And I you're making me clarify what I mean. As always, the hardest nut to crack is the one about the cops. That is always the center of our racial tensions, whether people say it or not. And it's been that way in particular since the early 1960s, if not before. And so I talk about the pushback, but You know, Black Lives Matter is becoming kind of a nebulous concept, but I think we would both agree that the reason that they exist is because of the idea that the cops kill black people out of racism and that that needs to stop. Now, it's getting to the point where Black Lives Matter has associated itself with a general leftist point of view. And so you say Black Lives Matter and you start thinking about Ibram Kendi's books, et cetera. But those Those athletes are responding to things like what happened in Kenosha. They're thinking about George Floyd. They're thinking about men like them who get shot by the cops and the idea that the cops shoot men like them but would not kill their white equivalents. Now, you and I have talked about how that is a very debatable proposition, and that's putting it politely. I don't think either one of us believe that 
the evidence suggests that the cops kill out of even subconscious racial animus. But that's an argument that people like us make that gets read by a certain crowd. It feels counterintuitive. Frankly, I don't know what to you, but even to me. And so if that's going to start having an effect, you know, it's almost sad that the highest up I've heard it have an effect is from the jackasses now, um, Trump you know, who actually said, well, it happens to more white people. And I was thinking, oh, God, he got that from the sort of thing that we write. But it's not going to get around beyond that too much. And so I don't blame those players for laboring under that illusion and protesting it. That's not going to go away for a long time. However, everything else about race, everything, you know, outside of that central circle, it seems to me that people are more, I hate to say, I'm not even going to say, people are more empirically grounded in it. And I think that there is room in this country for white people who are not saying, as they would have said 50 years ago, I don't see that there's a race problem at all, but just not that we need to go overboard and pretend that critical race theory is somehow the Bible, which is what these new people are trying to make all of us say. But no, there's always going to be at least for the foreseeable future, this general idea that the cops walk around killing black men when they wouldn't kill white men. That's going to be a really tough one to get through to people, especially people who don't read Slate and commentary and, you know, watch this, which is, let's face it, most people. So, yes, you're right about that. That's not changing. That that can make it look like nothing is happening. But I think beyond that, there is some sort of sea change happening compared not to not to 2015, but to say May. I think that here, as we get into September, we've seen a certain shift. Talk about how fast things are going. Well, the election approaches, and we should probably talk about that. But I want to say something about blacks and the cops first. And um, this is difficult to say, actually, because I'm, I'm, I've been, been possessed by an idea of late. And the idea is that the ability to maintain universal standards that would apply to everybody is to some degree sensitive to and dependent upon the extent to which black people meet those standards. Okay. Think about Mm -hmm. affirmative action in higher education. The the ability to, for example, rely upon a test score that has a a test regimen that has a discriminatory incidence that black people don't do so well on the test will undermine the legitimacy of the test. Because the question will be put, either there's something wrong with black people or there's something wrong with the test. So what I was saying was the my general proposition, I said I've been disquieted by a thought which was difficult to say. My general proposition was that the ability to maintain standards that apply to everybody is to some degree dependent upon uh, the uh, extent to which African-Americans, black Americans are maintaining the standard themselves. If we fall short of the standard, to some degree, it undermines the legitimacy of the standard itself, because the question gets posed, why aren't we uh, measuring up? To which the answer could either be the standard is illegitimate or there's something wrong with us. This is this is when I say bluff, I, I say these uh, uh, some of these uh, anti-racists, when they don't want to talk about the pathology and the failures and the uh, lack of performance and the deviance and the and the uh, tragic loss of the development of human potential. Uh, reflected in some of the deficits of African-American social performance. They refuse to talk about that. They ascribe it to something called systemic racism, and they chalk it up to white supremacy, 
what they're doing is they're daring you to say, no, it's because the blacks have failed. And uh, to say that is said to be racist. And if the blacks haven't failed, then evidently the fact that they are disproportionately at the bottom or not included or overrepresented amongst the, those being punished or whatever, must mean that the system itself is illegitimate. Now, that's an argument. We can have it. But the stakes are not just about the blacks. The stakes are about everybody. So if you have law and order being put up against justice and, and, and racial reconciliation, you get to choose. Which one do you want? You want law and order or do you want to be on the right side of the racial anti-racism? Because I'm talking about blacks and the cops. This was the subject that you had introduced. This is what prompted mm-hmm. me to go down this line. Um, the fact is the, the vast disproportionately overrepresentation of blacks amongst lawbreakers. The, the fact is uh, half the homicides in the country are committed by black people. We're uh, a tenth or an eighth of the population. Um, the fact is almost every single one of these viral national incidents has got a dark underside to it. Okay. We're not supposed to point out that somebody is a thug. Okay. I pretend I didn't say that word and no, I'm not trying to point it out, but I'm just saying, man, I'm just saying, look at the rap sheets, look at the biographies, look at the, every one of the circumstances, there's a resistance or some kind of behavioral, uh, uh, deviance amongst the person who's encountering the cop. Almost always. Yeah. You know, the narrative that the cop is white and therefore it's systemic racism is complete BS, man, as a scientific or social scientific narrative. I mean, yeah, it might be racism or it might be a whole lot of other things, a lot of other things. Uh, so, uh, the, the, um, what I think is happening now is that it shows the danger of a certain kind of unraveling. People walk into high-end stores having thrown a brick through the window when they walk out with their arms full of boxes. And serious people in news, serious newspapers will write, well, you know, there's a case for looting. You know, uh, the, the representatives of radical organizations will say, well, they're simply getting their reparation. They're simply uh, t- uh, feeding themselves or whatever, whatever. And then uh, uh, Cafe Clotch liberals will pat them on the head and, and will come up with all kinds of rationalizations. Mm-hmm. And this is a debasing of the currency. This is an inability to say what is right and what is wrong. And what I'm mm-hmm. saying is the ability, the fact that these riots are racially integrated with a lot of white people participating in it has been put out as a... Uh, uh, indication of the universality of the uprising or whatnot. No, it's an indication of the universality of defining deviancy down, of, of the universality of the suspension of any duty to comply with the re- restraints and requirements of civil society. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a bluff. Uh, the people who are smiling at you while this is going on are lying. They don't really believe in it. They're afraid. They're cowering. They're craven, but I don't think it holds, and I think it invites reaction. And this was the point of Andrew Sullivan's column. I don't know if you saw it recently, which is, <clears throat> um, man, uh, if if you allow this kind of, uh, in the name of racial justice, uh, disorder and violence and and uh, a civil uh, unrest to proliferate, 
<clears throat> you're going to elect Donald Trump, A. <clears throat> and B, you're going to call forth a vicious reaction. And to some degree, the reaction will be justified. No, not the extreme white racist supremacist, whatever. No, not the vigilanteism. But the sense of uh, contempt that I think has to be bred in many people when they see respect for the basic uh, notions of decency uh, uh, given short shrift, you know. Anyway, I've talked long enough. You see what I'm getting at? <laughs> Very much so. And, and people need to realize that whatever you think of Andrew Sullivan, and I think the world of Andrew Sullivan, but there are people who don't, that he tends to be right. He's one of those good prognosticators. He has a good record. The, um, You know what this is? I mean, as always, I think your psychological analysis of the white people who go along with this is a little different from mine. Um, no, most of them don't really believe this stuff. Or to be honest, if you're going to be unpopular today, I'll be unpopular and say that in my experience, the whites who really do seem fully believe that a person taking a television set for no particular reason because the riots happen is a freedom fighter who's getting their reparations and they really can't see beyond it. Those happen to be the individuals who are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. Most white people who support things like this are looking over your shoulder and they're kind of working it out. But to be honest, what I'm seeing is an American intelligentsia, and a lot of that intelligentsia is of color, frankly. I hate to be vulgar about it, but it smells like pee. To me, what we're dealing with is an American intelligentsia that has peed itself because they are so afraid of being called a bad name in public. They don't want that Twitter mob to come after them. And they've got pee in their underwear. And I'm, I'm synesthetic. And so to me, it really is at the point where it smells like piss. And I am, I'm not going to use that analogy anymore, but I am <laughs> beginning to be almost ashamed because what I see in this is people, I mean, you have to have charity. <clears throat> oh, how superior he sounds. Sorry, folks. But I really do feel that it's a charity in that they're so scared and I can imagine how scared they are because I know how scared I would be to be called a sexist in the public sphere. It would make me want to jump into a lake and drown. It would nearly kill me if somebody put that stamp on me that I don't like women or, you know, whenever there's been a hint of it, I have nearly had some sort of gastrointestinal problem. That's how I think all of these educated people feel about being called a racist. And I understand, but it's time for them to get over it because the result is not only this fakeness, but yes, it brings out contempt in a less filtered kind of person that you're talking about, not to mention, I think, occasionally violence, but it creates a riven culture where what you're allowed to say, what you see in print is completely different from what even any reasonable, kindly person would think of as rational. And so we had a, I think a lot of people paid attention when I had more pity for the, for Omar than you did. You know, so once some people got past me supposedly stereotyping, they could see that I kind of felt we needed to give Omar a break, but they're, they're fine lines. And since that conversation that we had, I believe in June, we've seen some cases where it's not just Omar, you know, reaching into the window and grabbing a little something. It's, it's too many Omars. It's happening in too many places. They take it too far. Omar is doing things that end up having so little connection with the original event that it's clear that something is going wrong. Excuse me, John, what do, you, what do you make of the fact that there are too many Omars, too many windows, they're taking it too far? What do you think is going on? 
I honestly think that, and this is kind of what I said in June, part of black identity post Stokely Carmichael for many people has been that the rules are different for us. And so suppose you do need a new TV. Well, there's going to be an idea that you're going to riot. You are angry that George Floyd got killed. You are angry about you know the, the latest case. And everybody's kind of going crazy. I imagine often a certain intoxication has to do with it and a certain group fellowship. And you figure, well, during this one time, because nobody's watching, I'm going to grab a TV because I am a black man in America. And you you can get that reinforced in you by the music you listen to, by one of the pastors whose services you listen to, by every third friend you've got. So it feels natural. And I think that there would have been a recoil from that among that person's grandfather and his friends in, say, a Harlem riot in 1943 or four, three. It wasn't the same then. There wasn't as much gratuitous killing. I think that's because of the idea that it's different for black people, which is the precursor idea to the one now that, you know, black people can literally do no wrong. Anytime a black person cries racism, you're just supposed to bend over. All of that begins with the whole black power idea. So I think it's that. It's black identity. And many people would say, you're talking about black pathology. No, I didn't say that because I can completely understand how that identity settled in. And Omar isn't thinking about social history. Omar just knows what he heard. But that's why there's so much Omar. But it's gone to the point that people in authority need to stand up and say, all right, Omar, let it go. You know, you, you've heard a certain thing Why do you think they're the not years. doing it? They're not doing it, are they? Well, a white person doesn't do it because their underpants are full of pee. A black person doesn't do it. A black person can do it and gets yelled at. Of course, you know, Bob Woodson is the type of person who would do it. But a lot of black people don't do it because they genuinely believe that to be black in America is to be subject to a different set of moral standards. And to them, that's a very coherent sense of justice. And I think this is many people with PhDs on out to all sorts of other kinds of people. It's a different ideology. Black people Why isn't this this a variation on something that we know? I mean, you will recall perhaps or you will have read about during the 1960s, I will recall uh, the counterculture and the anti-war and the excesses and the weather underground violence and whatnot, and the sympathies amongst the radical chic intellectual classes and uh, on onto the left wing of the, of the legitimate uh, political establishment for this kind of deviance and the smoldering, scithering, uh, you know, seething, uh, uh, antipathy to this, uh, uh, radicalism and to the tolerance of this radicalism, uh, that, uh, uh, animated a so-called silent majority of, uh, of quote unquote ordinary Americans, uh, who thought it was despicable that ser- soldiers who served their country would be spat upon when they returned, who thought that burning your draft card or burning a flag was an abomination. Uh, and, and who voted, et cetera. Okay. Long story, you know, George Wallace actually prospering in the Democratic primaries in 1968 and 1972. You know, Richard Nixon, you know, Spiro Agnew with his nattering nabobs of negativism and other William Sapphire written, uh, brilliant lines of, uh, of, uh, uh, rhetoric, uh, and so on. But why isn't this something like that where, um, you have Kenosha? And it's a small town in a uh, Midwest and it is what it is. And I'm not going to go in. I don't know it that well. I've just been, I mean, I grew up in Chicago. I knew of Kenosha, but uh, it's now come into our light. 
But there are a lot of Kenoshas around the country and a lot of people in towns like that looking at what's happening. And of course, it could happen anywhere. It could happen anywhere. Just there's no, you know, Kenosha didn't do anything in particular to deserve the whatever. It has its history, but it could happen anywhere. And they're thinking, they're thinking against these uh, Omars and their apologists. I'm sorry, there are Omar apologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and against the people whose reflex is to derogate uh, and denigrate uh, and and uh, uh, spew hatred at the police. I mean, Trump has his, has his uh, finger on something, doesn't he? When he says, we support our police. I'm talking about the median temper of American opinion. I'm talking about ordinary people. They could be of any color. They see an immigrant who built a business on the avenue, have his whole life destroyed in a flash. Um, they see these raucous mobs of uh, unbelievable arrogance and uh, uh, narcissism and self-importance uh, running around uh, insisting that people raise their bald fist or, or spewing racist invective. They see contempt for the ordinary, normal rules of civility by people who feel, self again, self-righteously empowered on behalf of justice for what many people will see as a bunch of criminals. Okay. You think they can't see it? You think, you think they don't think if he hadn't fought the cop, he wouldn't have ended up in the altercation that led to him losing his life? Why did he fight the cop? Of course, you can't say that. No one ever writes that in the New York Times or the Washington Post. I didn't say it. I was just saying someone might say it. But I'm saying, isn't there a silent majority out there? And I'm not just talking about the election. I'm talking about the country. You know what? It's I didn't expect to find myself going in this direction. But I think that um, a lot of the things that I think of as trying to help black America, like, you know, getting rid of the war on drugs, you know, encouraging the use of phonics in school by a certain crowd. They're not considered good enough because they're not about telling white people that they're racist. So no matter what slate you put out there, and there's a lot of problem with black conservatives from this crowd that you're not dressing down white people for their bigotry in crafting your solutions. If you're not doing that, then you're not, you're not doing the job. And something that I don't usually say straight out, because I don't think it's constructive, is that, and I probably shouldn't say it now, is that part of the reason those are my solutions is because I don't think that white people are ever going to be that unracist. That's just the way it is. I guess that now makes me very old fashioned, but I just figure that's the way they're going to be. And the reason I'm using this to respond to what you're saying is because I think part of the reason that white people running around with bombs and guns and, you know, breaking windows, that lasted, I may be getting my history wrong because now we're talking about when I was too young to know about it, but that went for about six years that you have these people running around and, you know, people who grew up in the suburbs who were breaking things and, you know, everybody looks at them and is disgusted and it helps get Richard Nixon elected etc. That lasted for about six years. And then they stopped that because people were quite disgusted. And even 
young white people watching them started to realize that was not the way to go. And so the weathermen, you know, they end up blowing up a whole building in Greenwich Village. And that goes down. I believe there was death involved in that. And that yeah. wasn't the end of it. But there was a sense that, no, that's not the way things can go. Whereas with this black kind of rioter, even though I'm not aware of a building being blown up with a little girl in it or anything like that, but still, this business of tearing up a town and recapitulating 1967, I think part of the reason that a certain kind of non-black person would look at a white person doing that sort of thing over years and years and think they deserve to basically be consigned to live in a deep, dark hole for the rest of their lives. But they look at a black man doing it and they think of him as kind of a hero and they pump their fist in the air in solidarity with him. It's because deep down they don't see black people as equal. That it's the gauntlet is almost upon them to explain how they could not come to that conclusion based on this ridiculous medieval frame of mind that we're encouraged to have where a certain group of people because of slavery and Jim Crow and redlining, all of those things, are not to be held to moral standards. Most people don't genuinely believe that. And if you trick yourself into religiously cordoning off a section of your mind where you adhere to that, I think it leaves you quietly thinking, okay, they are inferior. And you will go to your grave never saying it. You won't say it to your kids, but you don't think we're as good. I think that's part of the reason that the Omar is let by by the mainstream media. And I frankly think it's part of why Omar's black, luckier cousins who, you know, work at the New York Times or wherever else are inclined to see him as a hero. I think that there's an abased intra-racial, that wasn't put right, there is an abased self-image even among us, I think, that leads the modern black person to expect less of us than I think black people did even as recently as 50 years ago who were in power. Roy Wilkins would be appalled watching the basic assumptions that we're making. To take it even a little further ahead, he was an interesting intermediary here. Imagine Julian Bond watching all this. He wouldn't be saying that Omar was okay to the extent that it's gotten. That starts with the people after Julian Bond. Yeah, there's something okay. wrong. There's so much on the table. Uh, yeah, I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. Um I want to ask you about the march. So uh, the He's march on Washington, the uh, reenactment, mm-hmm. Al Sharpton, uh, the um, speakers. Um, I caught part of it on C-SPAN. I, I saw some representatives of the families of victims of police violence uh, speaking there. I saw a lot of no justice, no peace, call and response with the audience. I saw a ball of fist raised up in the air. I saw Al Sharpton hovering over the podium next to some of the speakers, the sister of, the mother of, and so forth. Um, on the recollection of the 1963 march of, um, of, uh, of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bayard Rustin and company, uh, where John Lewis gave that famous speech as a young uh, student for nonviolent coordinating committee activists. Where they edited him, they toned him down. Uh, yeah, they toned him yeah. down famously. And I thought... Because this is a moment of racial reckoning, after all. This is a moment of, uh, as the cliche goes, we are multiple crises. We have a pandemic. We have an economic crisis. We have a racial reckoning crisis, and we have a political crisis with the election or whatever, you know. But this is a moment of racial reckoning, and this is the March on Washington. This is the the Lincoln Memorial. This is the Washington Mall. It's the same reflecting pool. 
uh, where those famous photographs were taken of the 1963 march. The crowd's up on the steps. They were up on the steps again. The podium set up in, under the Lincoln Memorial where the speeches are being given on behalf of a certain civic idea, a certain really important iconographic, mythological, fundamental civic religion idea about race reconciliation. Martin Luther King Jr. He's a holiday for crying out loud. Okay? So who was there? Al Sharpton was there. Okay, you know that I don't have a high opinion of Al Sharpton. Let's not make it personal. I just want to say, I'm, I'm asking, what have we come to? I, here's what struck me. I'll take the first stab at this. It's been reduced to a kind of cartoon symbolism that almost has no connection to the actual historical phenomenon. The March on Washington 2020 and the March on Washington 1963 are as closely related to each other as, I don't know what, an orange and an avocado. <laughs> They're both fruits. But I mean, I mean, wait a minute. What vectors of American history reached their culmination uh, day before yesterday in Washington when Sharpton called some sisters and mothers and daughters of victims of police violence to yell out no justice, no peace on the steps of Lincoln Memorial? What deep ethical truths were being etched. We still cite in our textbooks today the speeches that were given in 1963. Are those speeches that were given uh, the other day going to be cited? Glenn, we've hit one of our things. You don't like it, huh? You think, you think I'm off? No, I don't, I don't like it. And to be honest, I didn't watch anything with the march because I am writing like my hair's on fire, this manifesto about wokeness. And whenever I get a spare moment, I do that. I I don't watch stuff because I want to get this book out. So I didn't, I didn't bother. And I didn't bother because basically like what you're saying, what are the chances that anybody is going to say anything that somebody's going to have in a book 50 years later? But I don't have the contempt for those people. Was it contempt? Do. I didn't mean to express contempt. Well, it I just like said it. it's an empty shadow. I said it's like the vapors. It's, it's, it's like the vestige of something. It's 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 if Martin Luther King the third, the son of Martin Luther King Jr., stood there and he gave a long speech. If you want to hear it, go look it up on YouTube. Yeah, I, I think in a way it's almost pathetic, John. I saw a picture of him doing it. He's never. I'm not going to make. He has not followed in the footsteps. The, what moral authority does it have? What what is it saying about the country? Who's he speaking is, for? It's 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 this is why I can't go with you on this. You know how if you get to a certain point and I've reached a point, you were at it before me where because you write about this and you've you've been on TV and the NPR and you've been invited to give speeches, you've met everybody. You know, at one point or another you have been in a room with all these people. I this, I'm not saying this to brag cuz it's not like you're checking off some list, but after a while you start thinking, shit. I met him all. Yeah, I I met Julian Bond. First time with you. I don't know if you remember when we were on that TV show. Back yeah, when I remember. We like each other. And then I had a whole dinner next to Julian Bond. I you had written him. a bad book that became a good book. It, 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 it uh, improved <laughs> with age, John. Your book improved with age. <laughs> I hope so. But that was the first time I met him. And then I really met him. 
I met John Lewis. I'm not even going to bother to talk about the conditions, but okay. I sat across from him. I got a good sense of him. He and I kind of clicked. I have met Al Sharpton more than once. And as we have discussed, this is what came out of it for me. Back then I said, oh, he's nice. Yeah. But he's also sincere. He means it. I don't think that he's the same huckster that he was. Yeah, He knew Tawana Brawley was bullshit. No, he's he a different kind of huckster. I he's not think the, so. he's I not think the he's same huckster. He's just under a misimpression. No, no peace. He's under a misimpression that George Floyd died because he was black. Al Sharpton genuinely believed that. Well, it's not a mis. Well, okay, it is a misimpression, literally speaking. But it's not as if it's just an accident. I mean, he was never going to believe anything other than that, regardless of what the circumstances might have been. What I just wanted to say was, I mentioned three people. All three of them are sincere. All three of them mean it. Tavis Smiley doesn't get talked about much these days, but if you rolled the dice again, he would have been at that event if he wasn't. And you know, I don't think either one of us agree with most of Tavis Smiley, but he means what he says. And so the idea is why are all these people laboring under a misimpression and doing this reenactment of an event where nobody was laboring under any misimpression whatsoever? Why is it that, you know, Rustin was right about every single thing. And now we have a would be Rustin like Sharpton, who's laboring under these misimpressions forced by pieties of the culture that surrounds him. I can't hate on any of them for that. They mean but, but John, it. John, how can you compare Bayard Rustin to Al Sharpton? Well, well I don't. I mean, I mean, not to paint Sharpton with his the sins of his youth, but at the time in the relevant respective time in Sharpton's life when he was an anti-Semitic uh, demagogue in New York, he used to be one. Maybe he's not now, but he used to he be was. one. He was. At yeah. the comparable time in his life, Bayard Rustin was a Quaker uh, activist, intellectual uh uh, building up a, a moral foundation for his uh, tutelage of Martin Luther King Jr. in the early civil rights movement. He was he was uh, a peacenik and a, a, a devotee of Eastern philosophies and uh, uh, a socialist and a and a gay man. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know. Is Sharpton resonant in the same deep way? Uh, with uh, the the values and the 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 sort of intellectual and moral depth of a buyer, no. I, I wouldn't say so. I, I would mm-hmm. say that's more evidence on behalf of my proposition that uh, things have descended into a kind of symbolic echo and a kind of vapor of what used to be a substantive uh, historical moral thrust. I, I don't see Al Sharpton as historical in any way. I see him as ephemeral. I see him as as a you know, emblematic of, of a kind of uh, diminishment and a kind of, you know, uh, uh, pathology, actually. I mean, I, you know. Damn. It really is frustrating that the cops get a bad rap about being murderers on the basis of racism. And I think the cops are awful in many, many ways. It's the way they treat people. But this idea that the cops kill black people because they don't like black people is so deeply entrenched. It drives so many good people. I'm not even going to name who they are, but a very well-known black news reporter. I had a conversation with them in a green room once, and I didn't know that this person was a big Sharpton fan, but we started talking about Sharpton. And this person, who everybody who's listening to this knows very well and probably likes very much, just praised out Sharpton to the skies. This person had covered him somewhat in the past, knew about his business. We talked about his diet. She knew everything. She. All right, I'll let it be she. But you got to. Too late now. 
<laughs> she knew everything. And I just thought, wow, she too labors under this misimpression, which I didn't bother to talk about at the time because it wouldn't have served any purpose. But it frustrates me because, you know, Al Sharpton, you can read a biography. I'll bet we both have read a biography of Rustin. And he comes out looking pretty damn good. There will be biographies of Sharpton. Somebody's probably working one up now. And the first one out of the gate will be written by somebody like Peniel Joseph or something like that. Somebody who's a, you know, a, a black radical fan of his. And Sharpton will come out looking like God. Then about 10 years later, probably a white fellow traveler with the civil rights movement, but who is less viscerally connected will write a real one. And Sharpton, you know, I, frankly, I, understand what he's been doing for the past 15 years. The David Garrow to the Neil Joseph. Yes, yes. And the David Garrow will write this book where Sharpton's going to look like an idiot for about the first two-thirds. Yes, you're right. And you would have him still an idiot up until the end. He's not an idiot. I I don't think he's stupid. I just think he's he's venal. I don't think he's stupid. (laughs) Uh, and, and I don't think he has any moral depth. I mean, he's the Reverend Al Sharpton, but that's that's a joke. He's I mean, I, so I, don't, I don't see any resonance. resonance. Ca- have you ever sat down? And, he cares. I have, not. I have not. He cares about these young men, and he thinks that only they're being killed. I don't know if he knows about Daniel Shaver or more re- recently Duncan Lemp and um, Tony Timpa. I don't know if he knows about the white ones. I genuinely don't know. But he he is fighting what he thinks of as a genuine battle for a racial reckoning about why cops keep killing these black men. And I, I don't think that he's wealthy. I don't think he's going to run for president again. I think he, he's gotten about as far as he's going to get. But he senses it as a real a real mission. I think the man grew. Unfortunately, the mission that he's after, if he's never going to defend any whites and doesn't know that this happens to white people and doesn't know that poverty has as much to do with it as race, is that what he's doing? Like you're, it's it's a little empty. It means that the march on Washington today isn't about something real, which is a tragedy. Yes, but Martin I don't Luther think King, it. Martin Luther King to Al Sharpton, man, that's a step down. I'm sorry, uh, yes. Al Sharpton will never be a national holiday in the United States of America. <laughs> of course, that's not his ambition. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know what he is uh, stands for? That's memorable, except for turns of phrase. He no justice, has, no peace. Oh, Sharpton is actually important. He is the name. Get your neck on, off our knee. We want America to get its neck off our knee. Now his, I mean, it's knee off our neck. He's the person who brings the problem between black people and the cops to the fore, particularly he tries to do something like that with Tawana Brawley, but then with um, 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 Amadou Diallo. That is his signature moment because it's been since then that you think of the cops and murder and black people all in one breath in that way. Sharpton is the one who put a name on this. This isn't opportunism. And, this, this isn't uh, simply uh, a kind of uh, entrepreneurship, a uh, kind of racial ambulance chasing opportunism. Horrible thing to say. That's like the last possible analysis that somebody would really try to profit on the basis of that. I think he really felt it. I think he he really meant it. He just doesn't know that the statistics don't don't back it up. I mean, maybe he's what you're saying, but he certainly faked it well the time that I talked to him for an hour. And maybe he fakes it. I don't know. I didn't sense that character that you're talking about. Okay, um, well, enough about Sharpton. I 
we we agree to disagree. Our sharpened day. Uh, and the civil rights movement is in good. The the, the uh, inheritance, the moral inheritance of King and Company, are in, is in good hands. The the symbolism of uh, meeting on the mall in front of the Lincoln Memorial in it's August. Not in good hands. No, it's not in good hands because they're not doing anything real. They're not in a position to because they're looking at the wrong things. That's the problem. It's sad. It's very sad. Okay, what what did you make of Kenosha? I know we're going on. We should probably be thinking about concluding, but I I wanted to hear what you uh, had to say about uh, you know we don't Jacob Blake. We, we don't know enough yet. It's one of those things, and I think you and I both learn that the first impressions of these things are never what the truth was. There's always something that was going on that you didn't know, and I doubt if anything is going to justify that he was shot. I think seven times in the back. Once again, you think about cop training. And, you know, everybody wants to say that it's because he was black, but nobody's thinking about the hundreds and hundreds of cases of white men killed. I'm sure you could find a white version of this person, but we don't know. But what does strike me is that as we found out in line with what you were saying in the beginning about certain personal details of his life, it seems that there is a certain violent sexual violation problem in his life. And no, that doesn't mean that he deserves to get shot seven times in the back and probably left paralyzed for the rest of his life. But I do find it interesting that when it comes to black people, I think it's evidence that black people are not thought of as equal by a certain class of supposedly sympathetic people. You know, we also live in a Me Too era. Well, there was a warrant out for him for sexual assault, was there not? This guy fails the and, Me and this Too was an altercation completely. with a girlfriend uh, where she had a restraining order. I mean, did she he not? has repeatedly violated in that way. And we're not talking about date. Took her car keys, took a car, or at least so was it alleged. And yet somehow the fact that he's a black victim of a cop shooting completely overrides an an aspect of him, which if he were white, and it's interesting, it, it would override even if he got shot by a cop and were white, I think. The idea would be no, he was um he was violent against women. He was a sexist and so I'm sorry, but we have to move on. He would be the Claudette Colvin of the case. You know, the, the woman who was going to be Rosa Parks, but she turned out to be pregnant. Different mores back then. I'm not espousing that. But he would be the Claudette Colvin. But not today. No, Me Too is canceled out because he's black. His, I don't know if I like uh, his status as a racial victim trumped his uh, uh, demerit as a, a sexual, yeah. quote unquote, predator. Makes me a little uncomfortable. And I'm not sure what I would expect people to do, but the idea that you're barely supposed to bring it up really makes me uncomfortable. And that doesn't always happen. Notice Kobe Bryant, where he dies under those very unfortunate conditions. And there were some people who ventured, well, let's not forget what he did. But still, I do think it's interesting that whatever we find out about that guy, what's going to matter is that a white cop paralyzed him and nothing else. Well, let me raise a, a general question. I hear you. Uh, we're not going to dwell certainly on his uh, peccadilloes or his uh, deviancy in, in the other realm. But the question I want to ask is, why should a person who is victimized be lionized? Generally, just very generally. They were victimized. And of course, that is worth taking on board. I mean, they should not be victimized and they have a legitimate claim to uh, quote unquote justice to uh, their victimization being uh, uh, acknowledged and to the appropriate sanction to the person who victimized them. But that doesn't make them a hero. If you die in combat, exhibiting valor under the fire of the enemy, you're a hero. 
if you just happen to be walking down the street and a rogue cop decides that he's going to make you the site of taking out his vengeance against black people, saying that that's what happened, there's nothing heroic about that. Why are you being honored? I mean, why would you honor somebody simply because they were victim? You want to acknowledge their victimization, but I don't understand why you want your children to remember their names. I don't know. Maybe you want them. Let me stop. Let me stop short of that. I'm not sure I want to. I want to say that. Well, the idea is that you remember their name because it called attention to something larger. Yeah, that's and, that's and right. That, that's that got to be right. A hero ship. No, I, I take your point. But, but their personal value, why is it right. elevated by the fact of their victimization? So much so that I then want to cancel out everything else that I know about them. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, it's the religion again. It's that the person is canonized for their suffering. It's the same kind of thinking. And I don't want to make light of anybody suffering, you know, in this case. But still, I think that has something. Okay, we honor our martyrs. Mm -hmm. That's what you're saying? We honor our martyrs. That's It's very Catholic. Yeah. I think it's it's part of this whole argument that what we're dealing with is seeing a religious faith emerging. You said some interesting things. I want to get this since we can't go on forever on on the record about Trump. And I want you to... uh, to, I want us to visit the question of, so there's this violence and there's this debate. Trump wants to send in the National Guard. The mayor or governor will or will not accept them. Uh, a lot of pundits from Trump on down on the right saying that uh, the Democrat-run Democrat run cities and all of that, uh, culture, uh, encouraging the violence. They want to tar Joe Biden with the violence. They want to use the defund the police thing as a way, et cetera. Versus on the other side, people saying, and there are white supremacists out there, and there are vigilantes out there uh, who are armed, and and, uh, Trump uh, calling patriots, people who might be showing up to be counters to the uh, radical Black Lives Matter uh, friendly activists, uh, and he calling them patriots, like stoking the fire, that's like throwing fuel on the fire. It's it's the you know what what do you make of the kind of morality? Of, of the of the uh, landscape here of, of the different players uh, in this environment where uh, there is violence breaking out in the cities and there's a lot of finger pointing. Well, I think ultimately these things are happening because of social movements on the ground. You can't pretend that you know Donald Trump is like the I'm going to go very arcane here the original LP cover of the musical My Fair Lady, where you have Henry Higgins and he's operating Eliza as a marionette. And so Trump is not operating these protesters in that way. That's just what I thought. But um, (laughs) I think the the normal, they're going to like that in the comment section. The normalization, though, of Trump is such that I just find myself astonished that the person who's the president, as in the person who presides, that root is lost in the word. We don't think of it as the presider, but still, he's supposed to be presiding. Never says there are people in the street who are rioting. There are people who don't like me. They are committing sometimes violent acts. However, that is no excuse for anybody in my name or the name of anybody connected with me to go out and be violent in the street in response. It won't stand. Notice that he never says that. And of course, it wouldn't have to be those words, but that meaning. It is call, call off his people. Talk, d- discourage anybody from doing anything on the right. 
yeah. uh, uh, that who support him from uh, contributing to this in any way. And imagine Carl, George George W. the first George Bush, Ronald Reagan. Imagine a president who we can't even imagine making that clear statement against those thugs on his side. I think it's appalling. That's what I think he's responsible for. It's not directly responsible, but if he sets a tone, then that's the tone that he sets, which is he winks. That's all. I, I did say she's winking. I agree with that. I, here's what I think. I mean, I'm not endorsing this, but I, this is how I think Trump is looking at the world. You saw what happened in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Now he got, and, and Biden keeps repeating this, and it's just false. I'm, I'm sorry. I hope you don't think it's true that Trump said there were good people on the white supremacist side in uh, Charlottesville. He did not. He explicitly said to the contrary in the context of those remarks that he didn't think that the white supremacists had any brief. What he said was that on the debate about taking down the Robert E. Lee statue, there were good people on both sides of that debate. Now, that's been taken and it's just been made into yeah. this thing, okay? You're right. And it's, and it's just not true. But, I mean, it's a small You're point, right. okay? But but he's looking at that and he's saying, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, uh, you know, all these uh, establishment, the Mitt Romneys of the world, you know, they're saps. They're playing right into the left's hand. They think they can be nice with these people and that then they'll be exempt from being called racist. They're going to call me a racist no matter what I do. So now here's the deal. There's actually a lot of violence going on um, by people who are either friendly to the left or the left is friendly to them, and they got dark skins, and they're running through windows, and they're beating up white people, and they're spitting on people, and they're whatever, whatever. It's going on. Um, I they, They're against the cops. I'm for the cops. That's the side that I'm on. Okay, this is not the time to equivocate or to apologize. This is the time to draw a very clear line about where I'm coming from. Believe me, if they were playing this hand, the cards that I've got, they would do exactly the same thing. That you know, they're never going to give me any credit for high-mindedness. Uh, the press are never going to say that he forbear in the interest of the country, no matter what I do. Uh, so uh, smarten up. Uh, it's a cutthroat game. As Obama said, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Okay? Uh, this is to the death. This is politics, metaphorical death. I don't mean blood in the streets. I don't think Trump wants blood in the streets, but I think he doesn't give a shit what they say about him in the New York Times. And I don't think he cares about the debasement of the institutions that he might be contributing to because he thinks it's a ruthless game. No one's going to be fair to him. And uh, he better play the cards that he's got or else he's not going to have a second chance to do so. Uh, here's a here's a really jerky way of putting it. He's supposed to be more like people like you and me. And what I mean by that is this. you um, This whole business of cancel culture and people being so hurt by the way you get talked about on Twitter. I think you and I, at least I, always look at how chilled people are by that. And I think people were talking to me that way and writing letters to me that way in the year 2000, you were getting it 15 years before that in within the black punditocracy and the black readocracy, whatever you call it, that kind of nasty, acrid name calling. I used to have people calling my office when I was at Berkeley. So you just kind of get used to it. And you realize that to be somebody who is quote unquote heterodox or contrarian means that you're going to be despised. And that no matter what you do, no matter how well you try to do it, there's always going to be a certain contingent of people who think of you as the devil and not all of them are going to be stupid. And some of them are going to say some really smart stuff and that's just the way it is. And then you die. 
if you are president, <laughs> sorry, if you're president, you're supposed to accept that. Harry Truman accepted that. Barack Obama accepted that. George W., look how statesmanly, statesmanlike he looks now. The horrible things people were saying about him, including me. He walked his way through it for eight years and he came out whole because people loved him and he knew that he had done his unfortunate best. Trump is small in making the calculus that they're never going to be nice to me. Mitt Romney would not realize that they were never going to be nice to him. And so I'm just going to shoot my wad and say what I want to say. That makes him small and ordinary and unfit for that particular office. I understand it, but he shouldn't be president. Small because he doesn't realize that it's not about him. It's, it's about the about country. Him. It's about the country and about the institutions and He's so on. That, that he plays with fire, that these things have monumental consequences far beyond his reckoning. Uh, and, uh, that, uh, he's the, he's captain of the ship. He should, it's not a motorboat. It's a massive ocean liner. I mean, he, he can't, he, he's got to be very careful about what he does. Uh, and he doesn't have that long vision. He doesn't, he doesn't have that, uh, resonance. This is the argument I imagine that you're making, not to put words. I was going to say, do you believe this? But you're expressing <laughs> it very, <laughs> I, I, I think, so my argument about Trump with you and others has always been, I don't know what quality of person he is. I understand that there's evidence to the effect that he is unfit in the way that you suggest. <laughs> evidence. <laughs> <laughs> but that he is, he is in any case a tribune of a certain thrust or uh, uh, component tribune. of a... Of a uh, he's a tribune, man. You don't think he's a tribune? What do you mean? I mean, he speaks for and is the figurehead in the front of a uh, a mass mobilization of people in the country who have certain views about about uh, the issues that he got elected on. I'm used to the word having a more positive connotation, but I'm being very I'm being no, very subjective. Functionally, yes. I, I didn't. I wasn't I know making what you mean. him into a saint. Yeah. I was just. I'm just saying sure. he's a guy out in front of the army. He's a, he's yes. who's leading the the way uh, on this. Uh, uh, anti-establishment. He is the Evita. Yes, he you is. Know, definitely. I mean, didn't they reject both party establishment in 2016? I mean, that's what seemed it to happen to me. The wife of the former president who served for two terms uh, uh, and who was massively ahead in all of the, I mean, she got defeated uh, narrowly by uh, this kind of a reaction. This, well, this, remember the Electoral College did that. Well, that's I mean, what I'm we, saying. I, I understand it's the that goes without saying. Trump would never be president without the Electoral College. Right. We have the Electoral College. I'm talking about the middle of the country. I'm, I'm talking yeah. about Pennsylvania. I'm talking about Michigan and Wisconsin. You know, he may carry Minnesota in this election. He may win this election, John. I find it unlikely, but he could. Yeah. I yeah. I have no tools to be seen. Um yeah, it's yeah, it's not our it's not our area of, of I must admit that I've already in the book that I'm writing, I'm already writing it with the assumption that he lost. And I'll just change it back if he wins. But uh, in my book, you took the a vice president is Man, Kamala wow. Harris. Oh, because you're looking ahead. I'm already writing President Biden because I'm just thinking there's no possible way. I'll change it. But oh, yeah. John, I, I think you're way out on the limb. I might be, but we'll we'll see. The polls so. are narrowing and so forth. Of course, Biden is leading in the polls. Uh, but the situation is very fluid and uncertain, uh, not just because of COVID or the economy, but also because of Kenosha and Portland and such. You cannot fool all the people all the time. And I'm thinking that the evidence suggests 
You don't get any more carrots. Thank you. Yeah, what, are, we're putting them back. what are you doing? Are you feeding? I'll I'll be done. All right. So um, yeah, I gotta let you go back to your family, John. Sorry, but um, actually, the editor should leave that in. That's real life. But I yeah. feel like the evidence suggests that Trump has really just been too awful, and that the virus is basically what's going to knock him out. That just he he killed yeah. too many people, basically. I think um, you better look very carefully at Arizona. You better look at Minnesota. You you, you better look at Florida. You, you know you be, you better you better look. You, you, Pennsylvania. You better follow the polls and and look at the things that because that's where the election is going to get decided. And just think about what it was like exactly four years ago and how sure it looked and look what happened. And I think there are a lot of people who are trying to be more careful now. I think polling has gotten better, but still. You never know with these sorts of things. Okay. I got a, I, I was thinking the other day about the, since we do a podcast and every the question is going to come up, but who are you going to vote for? Okay. So I have a very clever answer to that question. I have, uh, I'm going to preempt. Okay. I'm going to vote for Biden. Here's what I, I'm going to say. I'm going to vote for Biden, but you shouldn't believe me. <laughs> what do you mean? Okay. This gives me a chance to exhibit some very simple logic of information economics. I make a statement, you draw an inference, okay? My statement is, I'm going to vote for Biden. Your inference is, who am I going to vote for? The reason you shouldn't believe me was because is because if I might be wanting to vote for Biden, I might be wanting to vote for Trump. You don't know which one. I'm telling you I'm going to vote for Biden. You shouldn't believe me. If I were going to vote for Trump, I would never say it. Yeah. I, would, I would never say, come on, you know, if I no, were going to vote for Trump, I would never admit that I was going to vote for Trump. You and there, not even you. Therefore, there are two states of the world. Lowry's going to vote for Biden. Lowry's going to vote for Trump. Okay? In both states of the world, the motion that I take when asked who am I going to vote for is to say I'm going to vote for Biden. Therefore, mm-hmm. when you hear from me, I'm going to vote for Biden, you have got no information <laughs> since my response does not vary with the true state of the world. That's hence, really interesting. Hence, I have escaped the burden of having to answer the question, who am I going to vote for? <laughs> I'm smart, guy. <laughs> if anybody is watching this in 25 years, that clip is going to be the one that people use. I, um, I salute you, and that is <laughs> extremely clever. I, I know who I'm going to vote for, and I'm going to do it in person, hell or high water. But, no, um, you gonna vote for two, John, and I do believe you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Glenn, I've got to quit because I have yeah, I little people to feed, and so um, we thanks, shall John. This. Yeah, uh, okay, let's get together in uh, another couple of weeks. We will. Okay, take care now. <laughs>